It's exciting. And the region's first indoor skydiving center in Murdoff, where allegedly you can safely skydive indoors with patented wind tunnel technology that they say provides a safe and realistic experience. (laughs) Not sure about you, but I wouldn't want to be the first person to try safe patented wind tunnel technology in Dubai. (laughs) Skydiving in a mall. Only in Dubai. (laughs) Only right here in our great city. (laughs) Well, our family has actually eagerly anticipated the opening of the mall because, as I mentioned, we live in Murdoff. We're only a two-minute drive or a 30-minute walk to the mall, as I found out this week. But I was most excited two weeks ago when I found out that in this mega mall, was going to have sooner, it's not open yet, but soon will have my favorite restaurant perhaps on the planet Earth. It's a Chinese restaurant. I got so excited that this Chinese restaurant is opening up in Murdoff City Center that I told everybody about it. I kept telling my friends, I told my family back home. It's like, guess what? This Chinese restaurant is coming 25-minute walk from my house. So excited. I even posted it on Facebook and Twitter, which I hardly even know how to do. I had to ask my wife. How do you, Twitter, what is that? What, how do you do that, Facebook? I get her to update my Facebook. I know it's probably easy for most of you, but I'm still learning. Uh, but I started telling everybody, if I knew of someone here in Dubai that had heard of the restaurant, I, I let them know. I was so excited. I loved sharing. This very week, I loved sharing the good news of Chinese food. <laughs> I loved it. But then it hit me the other night, just perhaps three or four nights ago, as I was going to sleep, it hit me, and I thought to myself, as we approach this passage in Philippians, I thought to myself, how excited had I been to share the good news of Jesus Christ this past week? See, we love sharing news, don't we? We, we love it. We call each other to share something as small as a sale in the shopping mall and as big as the birth of our child. We love it. We, we love being the one who shares an interesting news story before anybody else has, has heard of it. We, we love introducing people to what's happening in the world. We even love telling people other friends' news, right? We, just, we love being the bearers of good news, even at the expense of, of hurting someone else's opportunity to do it. We love good news. We absolutely love to share good news. But I was faced with that question this week. How many times did I, and how many times did we as a church, even attempt to share the best news in the world this week? I wondered if it's even our natural inclination to talk to other people about Jesus. I mean, how much joy do you, how much joy do I personally get in proclaiming Christ to others? Well, as I thought about this, I thought that Paul's word in the Philippians, chapter 1, gives us some indication that the Apostle Paul took much joy 
and proclaiming Christ to others. So we want to spend some time looking at that today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles back to the great book of Philippians, uh, it comes after Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians, halfway uh, in the New Testament. And we'll see that Paul, once again, is a joyful man. We've been noticing that each week. In fact, 16 times in the book of Philippians, it mentions that Paul has joy or that Paul rejoices. And in our passage today, beginning in verse 12, we see here that Paul's joy resided in Christ being proclaimed. That's absolutely striking. I was in awe this week studying this passage. I think it'll be a blessing uh, to all of us. So let's look, and I'll read starting in verse 12 on down to 18. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. What a beautiful passage. And in this passage, we see that Paul's joy was indeed not grounded in his circumstances, but in the fact that Christ was proclaimed. We see that he had joy as the gospel was proclaimed by three different groups of people or individuals. We see that that he had joy by the gospel preached by himself, the gospel preached by friends, and the gospel preached by rivals. So by Paul, by friends, and by rivals. And all three groups brought him joy. Well, let's take a look and see first how it brought him joy by looking at the gospel proclaimed by Paul himself. Look at verses 12 and 13 again, quickly here. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. We see that Paul proclaimed Christ in his very prison cell. In fact, it says the whole palace guard, the whole palace guard heard the good news of Jesus. Now, the palace guard were the elite group of of Roman soldiers. They were handpicked as a special bodyguard for Caesar himself. There were 9,000 soldiers. They earned double pay. They had good pensions, had special duties. These guys were the best of the best the toughest and best and most well-trained soldiers around. 
There were even times in Roman history when they banded together to form a mutiny and to take down the current Caesar. So these were, these were top-ranking soldiers with much power. And yet even these men, these 9,000 men, couldn't intimidate Paul. Paul sees the opportunity to proclaim Christ. Now these men would have been quite a captive audience. I mean, literally. They would have been chained to Paul one at a time on eight-hour rotations. So Paul literally had eight-hour discipleship and witnessing sessions with soldiers around the clock. Eight hours at a time, they'd be chained to him. Now, I'm not sure if he would have slept much, but he certainly seized those opportunities. With three men a day, there were a lot of men that were able to personally hear the good news. But it was probably impossible to share with 9,000 individually, even if he was in prison for several years. So what I think Paul probably meant in what he's saying here is that his witness was so telling that stories about him and about his Christ, about Jesus, began to circulate around the palace uh, rather quickly. It's highly likely that each soldier that would hear his testimony and would hear about Christ as he's chained to Paul would likely then spread it out to everyone else. I mean, I mean, think about the impact that would have had on a soldier. Here's a man who was beaten for his faith, who is now in prison for sharing the gospel, and might likely face imminent death, and yet he's sharing about that same Christ in prison. Well, now think about Paul's situation. So think about if you were in his shoes. If you're facing prison or facing trial in prison for talking about Jesus, would you be tempted to quiet down and perhaps convince yourself that God wants you to to stay quiet during this time? Perhaps you'd even claim to hear some audible voice from God that says, just be quiet. Don't talk about me right now. You've already gotten in trouble for doing that. Now, if there's ever a time just to witness, to, to just be a blessing by your actions and not your words, it would seem like this would be the time. Now, in our human thinking, there, there really isn't a worse time to share the gospel, is there? Facing possible death, if there is ever a time to be silent, it would be right now. And if he did talk, I mean, it would be tempting, right, to protest your innocence, fight to get out, fight for justice. And instead, all we have indication here in the book of Philippians is that Paul talked about the crucified Christ who raised from the dead. So stories about him spread. They spread throughout the whole palace guard. And Paul became, I guess a sense that we get here is that he became sort of a prison celebrity. Everyone knew who he was. And as I read this this past week and looked at Paul's boldness, even in prison, facing possible death, I wondered about my failure and our failure to share the good news. And I wondered if perhaps the biggest reason we don't share the good news is fear. You know, we're afraid of what our, thing, or our friends will think of us. We're afraid of what our boss might say. We're afraid of a loved one being angry at us. Perhaps we're merely afraid of the awkwardness that could happen when we start talking about Jesus. Perhaps we're just afraid and we don't know quite what to say or how to start a conversation. Perhaps as you sit here this morning, you can think of a time when you felt compelled by the Spirit to share your faith. 
Perhaps you felt the Spirit leading you. Perhaps you felt some, some prodding of the Spirit within you to share with somebody, as if God is telling you, uh, talk, talk about me. And yet, even with that prodding, you sat there silent. I have a few situations that I can think back where I sat silent. But one really uh, comes to the top of, our, top of my mind this past week. I thought about this last summer as we were flying back to Dubai from the U.S. We were taken to the airport by some friends. After getting, off, getting dropped off, we waited in line, in the check-in line, and we realized that we had forgotten or lost one bag. We started freaking out and we kept recounting all of our bags, thinking that maybe magically the bag would, 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 would present itself in the midst of our big pile of seven or eight bags. So we kept counting and the bag never showed up. And we realized as we looked for our mobile phones to call someone that in that bag were both our mobile phones and both our laptop computers. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what to do without those things. You know, all my life is wrapped in these things. And I began to, to freak out that maybe I'd lost all of our things and I got angry. I blamed Gloria, um, which as a husband, never a good thing to do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I blamed her as if it's always her fault when we lose things. And I got angry at myself and blamed myself. And then I got angry at anybody that was around me as if it could have been their fault and I just started pacing back and forth. And I, I really lost it. I, I lost my, my cool and I got, got angry in front of several people. Well, thankfully, there was a man who helped us with our bags, and he gave us his mobile phone. And after about an hour of stressfully call, trying to call to track down people, we were able to figure out that our bag was left in, a, in the vehicle that took us there. And one hour later, we had our bag, and we're back in line uh, to check in at the airport. Uh, that man that helped us with the bags and witnessed me losing my anger and, um, and gave us the mobile phone, he stayed with us. He was helping us with our bags. And... And during that time, we started talking, and I realized that he was from the, the Sudan and that he had just arrived in the United States. I kept thinking to myself, I need to share Christ with him. I felt that prodding of the Holy Spirit that I need to tell him about Jesus, that I need to tell him that, that Christ gives forgiveness. Christ gives us forgiveness for all of our sin, even me losing my, my cool and, and, and being angry at the situation, that God even forgives me, that through the blood of Christ on the cross, I am forgiven. And that I uh, could now experience relationship with God. And I wanted to ask him for his forgiveness for what I had done. And to tell him that that is in no way how a Christian uh, should act. And to point him to the cross. It was an easy transition. A little embarrassing, but it was an easy transition to the gospel. And to the forgiveness Christ, Christ gives us. I knew this man needed Jesus. Perhaps he knew him. I, I didn't know. But I, I knew I should share and I just stood there. Silent for about 30 minutes as we made our way through the line. And as we left the airport, we, or we went into the, to the security check, and I realized that I had been disobedient, that I had an opportunity to share Christ, and I stayed silent. And I wonder about you as well. Have you missed opportunities to share Christ? Have you ever felt that prodding of the Spirit and just stayed silent. So I realized later on that plane, I had a 16-hour plane ride back here to Dubai. Lots of time to think and process and repent of my sin. But I realized on that plane ride that I suffered from an epidemic of my soul. 
called the fear of man. See, although I worshipped God below the surface, I feared other people. And when you or I do this, we in fact replace God with people as the focus of our lives. You can't live for both God and people at the same time. It's impossible. You either live for one or the other. And that time as I approached the plane, I was living for myself. I was living uh, for man, fearful. When we worry more about people than God, people become big and, and God then becomes small. Ed Welch, the author of a book with that same title, has said that, that we know we struggle with this when we are more concerned about looking stupid, the fear of man, than we are about acting sinfully, the fear of God. We are more concerned about looking stupid than we are about acting sinfully. So I think the most radical treatment for this, for the fear of man, is the fear of the Lord, isn't it? That God must be bigger to you, that God must be bigger to me than anything else, than any person. As we see in this passage, Paul had kind of every right to be fearful for his life, and fearful of these prison guards these hand-picked best-of-the-best prison guards, and the trial that awaited him. Instead, he feared God more, didn't he? He simply loved God more than he loved the approval of others. Our love for God, our fear of God, must come before our passion for God, our passion for sharing Christ. We must love God deeply so that we're ready to take advantage of circumstances to share Christ. Well, now, we've, now we've focused on verse 13, haven't we? But did you catch back in verse 12 what Paul says? When he says, now what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? Did you catch that? When he says, what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment. I mean, here he goes, I'm in prison. I think I'm going to get out. I'm not sure if I'm going to get out. I may die. But let me tell you the good that God has done in prison. Not only does the gospel transcend all ethnic lines, not only does it transcend all racial lines, as we've talked about, but the gospel transcends all circumstances. Already the gospel has become known in the palace guard, Paul says. Ultimately, Paul, ultimately Paul's joy rests in God and in his sovereignty in all situations. He realizes that God is in control of his life and that he has been put in prison for a specific purpose, that God has allowed it for his purposes to go forth in Paul proclaiming Jesus, even behind bars, even chained to a guard. Ironically, Paul's imprisonment brought the gospel to the very heart of a secular political power in Rome. God clearly had a purpose in Paul being there. God used his chains to spread his gospel. And he was faithful to do it, wasn't he? Paul turned his difficult circumstances of imprisonment into opportunity to magnify Christ. He was so in love with God, he was ready in all circumstances to share it. And he was deliberate in his suffering. And that also caused me to pause this week to think personally about my circumstances and to pray for your circumstances 
and wonder if we're magnifying God in the midst of them. Because it's not the case that Paul was, was having an easy time in prison. It was probably very difficult for him, hunger and frustration. But his attitude wasn't, woe is me, I'm really struggling, come help me and serve me. But, but, but it was one, as, one who was suffering, yet at the same time rejoicing. Metaphorically speaking, what are you chained what are you chained to right now? What are your difficult circumstances that you're dealing with? Is it a difficult job? Is it a financial situation? Perhaps you have a health problem that is limiting you at the moment. Don't waste it. Don't waste your circumstances. Proclaim Jesus now. It's perhaps the most wonderful time of your life to proclaim Jesus and to make much of Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. See, how you boldly proclaim Christ now tells the world that he's more important than your job. The way you proclaim Christ now tells the world that that he is more important than your financial situation. The way you make much of Christ now tells the world that he is more important to your life than your health or any other difficult life circumstance that you're facing. I think these verses have huge implications for us as a church. It means that we should seek every opportunity to proclaim Jesus. Paul's in prison, and the whole guard knows it, knows that he knows Jesus. If he had failed to share with each guard that was chained to him, he would have missed out on a key opportunity. I think that what that tells us is that proclaiming Christ is of the utmost importance that we be in the business of, of sharing him with others. I think it means that the most important ministry of this church will never be seen on the back of our church bulletin. It's the preaching of the gospel to each other as an encouragement of what Christ has done for us, and it's the preaching of Christ to those that don't know him so that they may hear of him. It's, it's prayer times together as we pray for our country that many would hear the gospel So our goal here in Redeemer, if we want to boil it down to merely one sentence, it would be that we would be making and nurturing disciples of Christ. Simple as that. That we'd be making and nurturing followers of Christ. We're not a social club. We're not a social justice organization. We simply proclaim the gospel and then build up followers of Christ. I think it's easy for churches to get distracted doing other things. Marshall and Payne described in their book, The Trellis and the Vine, when they say that the trellis of a church is the framework of systems that churches have to support their work. And the vine is the basic work of preaching the gospel and discipling people. You can probably picture a vine and a trellis in your head. You know, the vine is the focal point. It's the beautiful, life-giving structure that the trellis is there merely to support it, merely to help keep it growing. But Payne and Marshall say that the tendency for the church is for the trellis to take over. It's for, it's for us as a church to keep building trellis upon trellis upon trellis to the point that it takes over the vine work. Now, this vine work is hard. It takes personal prayer. It takes boldness. It requires us to depend on God and to open our mouths and speak God's word to one another. And trellis work is really much easier. So oftentimes churches will take their efforts and their time to put on programs or to run various events. 
and put various structures in place that at some point they miss out on the life-giving work of the vine itself, of proclaiming Christ. You know, it's easy for churches to do that, and that's why we're, we're praying against that for us as Redeemer. It's easy because to, to put on events, to put on programs, to start various ministries, it looks good, it looks tangible. You know, we're able to put a listing of 25 ministries on the back of our bulletin and able to fill our calendar with event after event throughout the week. And it looks like, as a church, we're doing something. But if I was the enemy, if I was the evil one, I think I would be more excited about a church succeeded, succeeding in areas that don't matter than a church failing. I've been overwhelmed this week thinking about all that a church can do, that all that a church can be and succeed in that does not involve making disciples. And it absolutely haunts me as a pastor. Not at the same time before we go down tearing all the trellises, all churches have them. So all churches have some, some structure. And, and in fact, in the upcoming months, we're working towards what our men's ministry is going to look like and our women's ministry. And we're also taking time now to pray and look ahead to what youth ministry will look like at Redeemer. And so we'll be doing these things. We'll also be bringing forth deacons and deaconesses in the upcoming uh, couple months and in the future, uh, more elders. So these things are important. But even in doing these things, we, we need to always put at the forefront of, our, of, of the church here at Redeemer that our goal is always the same thing in everything that we do. It's that we are here to make and nurture disciples of Christ. So if you're sitting here today, as now we're six weeks into the church, and you're wondering how to become involved in the life of the church, I would encourage you that the greatest work we can do is to proclaim Christ, to encourage one another with the gospel, and to proclaim it to the world. So, so if you have neighbors that don't know Jesus, if you have coworkers that don't know Jesus, if you have friends in any sphere of your life that don't know Jesus, that I would encourage you that the greatest work that we can do at Redeemer right now is to share Christ with others. We see that that's the case with Paul. He takes much joy in his suffering and his circumstances because he's able to proclaim Christ even in prison. So I'd encourage us in whatever circumstance to do the same. But we see that that's not all that's happening. Look ahead with me to verse 14. Paul says, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So secondly, we see that Paul rejoiced because the gospel was proclaimed by friends. So we see his brothers proclaim it. See, Paul's really looking at his life here as a sacrifice, isn't he? That by him being in prison, now all the rest of the brothers are emboldened to share their faith. They're preaching more courageously. They're preaching more directly. A whiff of persecution often puts a backbone into otherwise timid Christians, doesn't it? Some of you may know about the five couples that went into South America in the 1960s to proclaim Christ among the Aka Indians. Jim Elliott was among them. Him and his four friends were quickly speared to death as soon as they landed to proclaim Jesus. And yet, the, the story goes in the years afterwards that there were dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of ministers that went to go share Christ around the world and proclaim Jesus because of the faith and the boldness of these couples that went. And we see the same thing, I think, right here with Paul, that through Paul's faithfulness in prison, these Philippians have gotten word of it, 
Other Christians have gotten word of it and are now boldly proclaiming it. The chained inspired the unchained. So when believers heard about it, they saw that nothing (laughs) scared Paul. So how could they now keep their mouths shut? The text says that most, did you catch that? Most of the brothers preached Christ more courageously. Certainly means that Paul had in mind a number more than many. I mean, most is a pretty strong uh, word. So the people were clearly taking a stand, a strong stand for Jesus. It's amazing how contagious that is. It's amazing that if, that if we as a church boldly proclaim Christ, hopefully, prayerfully, other churches here will do the same. Notice something else in the verse as well. It says the brothers were encouraged to speak the word of God. Evangelism, the proclamation of Christ, is primarily a word. It's primarily a message. The good news of Jesus is fundamentally that, isn't it? It's news. It's something that is meant to be spoken. Being a good person or helping the poor or doing a good job at work are all good things, but those things aren't evangelism. Those things aren't proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Evangelism is a sharing of the words that a holy God created man in his image, and yet man has sinned, worthy of death, yet God in his love, in his wonderful love and justice, sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life on this earth and then to die for the forgiveness of our sins as a sacrifice for our sins. If only we'd repent and believe. That's the gospel. We've, we've often kind of narrowed it down into a helpful outline in, in that we say God, man, Christ response. That God is the holy creator. That man has sinned against God. And yet Christ has come to save if we would respond in repentance and belief. And thirdly, Paul rejoiced because the gospel was proclaimed by his rivals. Do you see that? He rejoiced even when the gospel was proclaimed by his rivals. Check this out. It's even hard for me to get my mind around verses 16 through 18. Let me me read them again. They're mind-boggling. Look at 16. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, now listen to 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So we see out of astonishing motives, Paul's rivals even preach Christ. Now it's important to note that these men were not heretics preaching a false Christ or another gospel. So whenever this occurs, Paul's not a happy guy, is he? And we see in the book of Corinthians that when people in Corinth were denying the bodily resurrection, Paul got after them. And we see in Galatians, when the Galatians supplemented the gospel with a message of works, of, 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 of conforming to the law and circumcision, Paul rejects them. He calls them foolish Galatians. And then in the book of Philippians as well, later on in chapter 3, he says to false teachers, beware of those dogs, those evil men, those mutilators of the flesh. So Paul has no patience 
with those that preach a false gospel. And they ought not be given an ear whatsoever in the church. So Paul's not commending every preacher who offers some show of piety and who preaches his own Jesus. He wants to know which Jesus they preach. Are they saying merely that he's an angel or a good man? Or is he the health, wealth, and prosperity Jesus who gives every material blessing under the sun? Or a liberal Jesus? Or are they preaching the biblical Jesus? That he is God in flesh, nothing less. Paul says later in 2 Timothy, the last book that he writes before he dies for his faith, he tells us that we need to always guard the gospel. We need to always condemn the false teaching of Jesus. So as a church, we always go back to the Bible. So I encourage you, as one who comes here to redeem or to examine the scriptures well, to not merely take our word for it as we preach it, but to examine everything that is preached with the word of God, our final authority. No, this is very serious. And ultimately, the responsibility resides in the church itself to constantly be examining the scriptures and making sure that as a church, we are guarding the gospel from error. But here in the Philippians, in the book of Philippians, these people are not condemned, but in fact, they still bring Paul joy. So they couldn't be false teachers in that regard. These teachers who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry propound the true gospel but sometimes do it with the strangest mix of motives. The text doesn't exactly say what is meant uh, by their envy or rivalry of Paul. Perhaps they envied Paul because he won a bigger following than they had uh, before he went to prison, thus thinking that they could lead him to deeper anguish by attracting a big crowd now. Maybe they thought they could take center stage and outshine Paul now that the leader was gone. Perhaps they suppose that the contrast between their spectacular ability to preach outside of prison and Paul's inability to preach in prison, which obviously would be, would be wrong on their part, perhaps they thought that this could cause Paul great pain. Perhaps now with Paul out of the picture, they were all claiming to be leaders of the Christian faith and competing with one another for the size of their ministry. Now we don't know exactly what's the case, but regardless of their wickedness, Paul even says that in their wickedness, God is using this to have Christ preached. So it's no wonder that the great famous passages in Philippians are birthed in a man who had seen the CEO Lydia saved by Christ through the intellect and the jailer saved by Christ through example, that now even in his most dark circumstances in prison, He's proclaiming Christ. And I'm guessing the prison in the first century was, was different than it is today. I don't know if there's cable or outside time. I don't think anybody's checking to make sure you're getting your meals in prison. And yet even in this, even in this, there are people outside prison preaching out of rivalry and envy. But even in this, I rejoice. He refused to be embittered. In prison. And even with these rivals, in fact, do you notice he never names who they are, right? He never names who these people are. He never really slanders them. Not at all. His chief concern is, is not the preservation of his rights or his own reputation or the opinion of others, but that Christ is proclaimed in verse 18 and that the gospel is advanced in verse 12. Nothing made him happier. You take away his health, his ministry, his reputation. You take away his freedom, and he still 
rejoices. Now in that, we can't say that the motives of the preacher are unimportant. They are. I think Paul is simply making the point that he rejoices that Christ has preached, and it doesn't matter to him who gets the glory. He's probably referring to the fact that he's in prison, powerless to stop the activity. I imagine if he was out of prison, he would rebuke those preachers. But at least they're preaching while he's in prison. At least they're preaching the true Jesus, who's crucified and raised from the dead. And for now, it was God's plan for Paul to be in prison. In the same way, I think of our circumstances, that God didn't bring you or or me to the UAE without reason, without purpose. It wasn't an accident that each of us are here in the UAE or even here this morning. Nor did he bring you to the UAE merely to make money or further your career. But he brought you here to share the best news in the world. Perhaps most of us didn't know that when we got here, that that's why God brought us here, but he did. And I think ultimately it's the only task that brings us joy. I know for me, when I do share my faith, when I do share the gospel, it brings me much joy that I'm faithful in proclaiming the best news in the world. I think as believers, if we believe there's a real heaven and a real hell, we should be moved to proclaim Christ and to reach out in the name of Jesus. If we love people, our hearts should propel us Several months ago, I heard one of the most convincing arguments for this from an atheist. His name is Penn, the well-known illusionist in the duo Penn and Teller. On his video blog, Penn talks about a man who came up to him after a show and gave him a Bible. This man tried to share Christ with him, and Penn recounts the experience on his video blog. I want to read to you his words. So these are Penn's words, not mine. He said, I'm a businessman, I'm sane, I'm not crazy, and he looked me right in the eye and did all this, and it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes, and he was truly complimentary. He did not seem like empty flattery, he was really kind and nice and sane, and looked me in the eyes and talked to me, and gave me this Bible. Now, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? I don't know how atheists who think people shouldn't share Christ and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to myself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is far more important than that. Well, those are the words of an atheist on his video blog. Those are strong and convicting words for us as believers. If we believe that we have the best news in the world, the news that can save We can't keep it to ourselves. We see in Luke 19 that Jesus' very mission for coming to the earth was to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission to save people and Paul discovered that was his purpose as well. He understood Christ's words before he ascended. 
when Christ said, go and make disciples of all nations. And now this is the mission that Christ has left us with today. Because the reality is that there's a truck. As Penn said, there's a truck bearing down on each of us. That is the wrath of God, and all of us need saving. You need rescuing. I need rescuing. But he has offered it up to us by sending Christ to die on the cross and being raised from the dead. Those who have repented of their sin and believed in Christ are saved from that wrath. But if you haven't believed in Jesus, please know that we are so, so very glad that you are here. We love you, and we really hope that you would continue coming uh, to our gatherings uh, at Redeemer. But please know that we love you enough to tell you that everlasting riches are available through Christ by turning from your sin and believing unto Jesus. So I would encourage you to begin a relationship with God today by doing, by doing just that. Well, this week, I would love all of us to spend time processing this very passage. For those of us that are followers of Christ, I would encourage you to think about who you spend time with. Who are those people in your life that don't know Jesus? What do you eat? Where do you uh, spend your time? Where do you grab coffee? Who are your neighbors? And have you proclaimed Christ to them? Do they, do they even know you're a Christian? And I encourage you to, to think about why you haven't shared with them and to pray for them. Because there's no one, regardless of background, regardless of experience or wealth, that is outside God's power to save. He changes real people. We've seen that in the book of Philippians. Through Lydia, through the jailer, through these prison guards who are hearing God's word. And I encourage us to answer one question this week. Simply, who can I share Christ with? Even this week. I encourage you to pray for that time. And if you don't have relationships like that where you could share, I encourage you to begin to pray for those relationships and to seek that out in your life. Well, in closing, I want to read a convicting quote by Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor. He once wrote this about this topic. Life is so brief that no man can afford to lose a day it has been well said that a great king were to bring us a great heap of gold and bid us take as much as we could count in a day, we would make a long day of it. We would begin early in the morning, and in the evening we would not withhold our hand. Winning souls is far nobler work. So how is it that we quit so soon? Let's pray and ask for God's grace to do this. Father, we pray that we would find our joy in the proclamation of Christ. That all we do will serve to advance the gospel. Father, help us to use our circumstances to spread your name among those whom we live near, those who we work with, and those who we spend time with. Help us to fear you and not people. And may we as a church see thousands of people come to know Christ in the days ahead, that churches upon churches would be planted all throughout Dubai, Sharjah, throughout our whole country, and that we'd be able to even send people out from here to other nations to proclaim the good news. Father, what a privilege it is to serve you here. Use us, even this week, 
to proclaim Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.